Well, good morning, church. It's good to see all of you. Glad to be in worship with you today, whether you're online or here. And I'm seeing some new faces I hadn't seen in a while. I've been back since the reopening. It's good to see you. And so wonderful to have you here today as well. And I'm so joyful we get to worship together uh, the Lord today. I want you to take your Bibles and start turning to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. And we're going to look at this story filled with prophecy and vision and look at our topic today. And our topic today is guilt deleted, deleting guilt. Anyone need a, a lesson on deleting guilt today? It's there. I think you'll find it very encouraging to you. Our text is Zechariah 3, 1 through 10, and we'll get to there in just a moment. You may not believe in ghosts, uh, but we know some people who are haunted by the ghost of guilt, don't we? Those guilt ghosts that are there. In fact, go back to the previous slide. Yes. In fact, if you think about it, I almost called this sermon Guilt Busters. Kind of like the movie Ghostbusters, you know. Who are you going to call? You know, the Guilt Busters, right? <laughs> so wouldn't it be nice if when we have that ghost of guilt to visit us, we could call the Guilt Busters. And they would come with their guilt-busting machines and they would come into our house and take away that guilt and make us free. Be great, wouldn't it? That's a myth that's not going to happen. However, here is the truth. If you're suffering from guilt, if you're suffering from that, I hope that from the scriptures that we share today, that you're going to learn that your guilt can be deleted once and for all. Uh, guilt is real. It's there whenever we have any sort of wrongdoing that we do. And as strange as it sounds, and even illogical, did you know that guilt, instead of driving us to God can oftentimes drive us further away from God. And somehow we find ourselves trying to manage our guilt instead of turning over to the God who deletes our guilt. Isn't that interesting? Now, God has given us a conscience, hasn't he? And that conscience is to be our guide. But the conscience is not set on a permanent setting. Our conscience is a thermostat. You, you think about a thermostat. And you control your own thermostat. So in your house, if it's too warm for you, you go to the thermostat and you turn it the degree that you want it to be until you're quite comfortable, don't you? That's the same way with our conscience. If my guilt level is causing me a lot of discomfort and I'm very uncomfortable with that guilt feeling, I will go to my thermostat of my conscience and I will turn it down until I begin to feel comfortable again. That's why the Bible warns us about our conscience, not to harden our conscience, but to keep our heart open before the Lord, to obey the Lord, to listen to his word, to keep a clean and pure and sincere conscience before him so that we can be led in the right direction. Now, God knows how to delete our guilt. Now, not just the guilt feeling, but the guilt itself. And those are two different things, aren't they? There's the guilt feeling, and there's the guilt itself. And we do all sorts of things to try to escape, to get rid, to soothe ourselves of those feelings of guilt that are in our life, but we never deal with the guilt itself. Some people try to deal with their guilt unsuccessfully by escaping. Uh, they'll turn to drugs, alcohol, different forms of entertainment. They will begin to overcompensate to make up for the wrongdoing that they've done by throwing themselves into their work or doing something else. 
And they will try to do whatever they can to escape, to get their mind off that feeling of guilt. Others try to soothe that guilt feeling by denial or by going to therapy or by just tuning other people out or shutting themselves off from the people that they've hurt because they just cannot deal with the guilt. Others will make excuses. They will justify their guilt, won't they? And they will, they will never accept responsibility, but they'll make excuses and justify. It, it reminds me of the statement about those in prison. Have you heard that statement? Those who are in prison are never guilty. There are no guilty people behind prison bars. Why is that? Because everybody claims they're what? Innocent when they're behind bars. Some people maintain and uh, they refuse to take responsibility for their wrongdoing. And in turn, they become haunted by the guilt emotionally and physically and spiritually that imprisons them. Yet instead of letting that go and having the guilt deleted, what do they do? They continue to maintain their innocence. They continue to make excuses and alibis. And then other people try to deal with the guilty feeling by time. Time heals all wounds. It heals some wounds, but it does not heal all wounds. It does not heal all wounds. And I'm just telling you, unconfessed guilt is never healed by time. There are people who think, oh, I just give it enough time, and if time goes on, it'll be okay. And then years later, that haunting ghost guilt emerges at the worst possible times, the most inopportune times, doesn't it? And it never goes away. There is no statue of limitations on guilt feelings. Often we talk about when we get older that we tend to forget things. It is amazing how we forget the things we want to remember and remember the things that we want to forget, like guilt, right? I think about people say, I need a better memory. I need a better forgetter, you know? So when, when you think about these things, the fact is you cannot satisfactorily deal with your feelings through escape or denial or thinking that time's going to deal with it because it just won't. And that's just the feeling of guilt. What about the guilt itself? What do you do with that? We need both the guilt and the guilt feeling to be deleted in our life, don't we? Well, if you're a Christian, you know what I'm going to say to you at this very moment. But I'm going to say it anyway. The one and only way that your guilt can be deleted and the feelings of guilt to be deleted is by God. There is no other way. And here's the beauty about God. God will forgive and completely delete the guilt in your life even when other people cannot do that for you. The greatest gift and hope that you have as a person is that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, can forgive you completely and delete your guilt completely, even if those people in your life cannot forgive you or they will not forgive you. Isn't that amazing? That's the beauty of how God deletes things. As that old song goes, I love this song. We lose all our guilty stains, lose all our guilty stains, when sinners plunged beneath the flood, they lose all their guilty stains.
See, that's what happens. Through Jesus Christ, God deletes our guilt. We are free from accusation. We are freed from condemnation. And we are set free through Jesus Christ, and that guilt is deleted. Now, here's the difference. And I, I think about this. We all experience guilt, don't we? But Satan uses guilt one way, and the Holy Spirit uses it another. Satan accuses you in order to keep you in your guilt. The Holy Spirit convicts you in order to free you from your guilt. See the difference? The Satan is the great adversary, the accuser, who wants to keep you in your guilt. And the Holy Spirit convicts you of that guilt, that sin, so that you will be freed from it. I think the best illustration of this is found in the life of two people on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. Both betrayed and both felt guilty for their betrayal. Both those stories are found in Luke chapter 22. And the first story is about Judas. In Luke 22, verse 3, it's the aftermath of after Judas has betrayed our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver. He realizes now what he's done. He's filled with remorse and regret and tremendous amount of guilt. Satan enters his heart, the gospel says. So Satan now has enticed Judas to betray the Lord. Satan has rewarded Judas for, be, for betraying the Lord. And then Satan accuses him and accuses him and uses him and haunts him and fills him with remorse and regret for betraying the Lord. He's so filled with remorse and regret that Judas goes back with the 30 pieces of silver and he tries to give it back, doesn't he? And that won't even absolve him. And filled with those accusations in his head, mind and heart, he goes out and takes his own life. There's another story of another person at the same period of time, recorded also in the same chapter, Luke 22, and his name is Peter. And Jesus had told Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter said, no, nah, not me. I'm, I'm there faithful to the end, right? But during the night of the crucifixion and the trial, all that's taking place, Peter denies the Lord three times before that rooster crows. And when he hears the rooster crows, it says he weeps bitterly, doesn't he? Weeps bitterly, filled with regret and remorse. But notice the difference. Peter stopped listening to Satan. He quit listening to the accusations. And he allowed the Holy Spirit to convict him. And through that conviction, Peter was led to repentance and restoration. And that guilt was deleted. The difference in the way Judas and Peter handled their guilt is the same for us today. And Paul clearly identifies it for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he talks about a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. Listen to these words. Here's Paul. The kind of sorrow that God wants makes people change their lives. This leads them to salvation, and we cannot be sorry for that. That was Peter's godly sorrow repentance wasn't it but the kind of sorrow the world has will bring death that's what judas had it's from satan filled with accusations to entice us to reward us and then to accuse us and haunt us and bring forth destruction now with that in mind i did not forget about zechariah we're there now okay 
Zechariah 3, 1 through 10, I think this very unique story gives us through that vision and prophecy of how and what it feels like for our guilt to be deleted. And I hope you get a lot out of this particular prophecy. But before we get there, I have to introduce you to some characters in the story. So it makes a little bit more sense. The first character is going to be Zechariah. He's the prophet who gets the vision. The second person in the story is going to be the high priest Joshua. He's not the same Joshua of the Old Testament Moses. He's the first high priest that serves in the new second temple. He's Joshua, okay? And then you have, he's the high priest. He's the mediator between God and the people of God. On the Day of Atonement, he goes into the most holy place to offer the sacrifices for the sins, to cover their sins for the next year. And that has to be done year after year after year until the eternal great priest will arrive. Now, the third one is the devil. He's the adversary here. And he is accusing Joshua and the people of Israel, accusations against them because of their sins. You have the angel of the Lord in this vision, who is the, on the hierarchy of angels, the most powerful angel that exists in the universe. He's the angel of the Lord. Then you have the Lord God who will be speaking to Satan directly and speaking to us as well. And then you have throughout this whole series, the Messiah that's being prophesied. And you'll see him in the high priest, you'll see it in his name, you'll see it in the branch, and you'll see it in the king. And I will tell you, there's one particular item mentioned in this story about a stone that has seven eyes, and I'm not going to touch that one today, okay? But if you're in the chat room today and you kind of have more time on your hands, you want to Google it, why don't you see what the stone with seven eyes may mean and share that in the chat room, okay? But we're just going to leave that one there, okay? But I promise you, the other stuff we're looking at is really great, okay? So here it is. With that information in mind, let me read this to you. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience with me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing there. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before me, you are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I set in front of you, Joshua? Now here's the weird one, okay? There are seven eyes on that one stone, but I'm going to engrave on it an inscription, says the Lord Almighty, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under the vine and olive tree or fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, that is a very unusual and unique story in the Bible. Normally, the high priest once a year would offer sacrifice for sins to cover them for the year. And here you have in the Bible two unique occasions when God breaks the normal standard to provide forgiveness. Do you remember the story of Isaiah? 
You remember that story in Isaiah? Isaiah has a vision in Isaiah 6 of the temple. And in the temple, he sees the Lord and the, and the majesty and the sovereignty of the Lord. And above him are the seraphim angels. And the seraphim angels are, are declaring about the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when Isaiah sees that vision, and here's what the angels are saying, he says, woe is to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember what happened next? One of those angels went to the altar, took a burning coal from the altar, and put it on the lips of Isaiah. But then said, your guilt is deleted, and your sins atoned for. Isaiah was then given a charge, a commission, to be sent out for the Lord. And in this vision of Zechariah, it's a very unique one. Because here are the sins of Joshua and the people upon the high priest. And this occasion... We find that he's, the old sins are taken away. The guilt is deleted. Satan is rebuked. And the people of Jerusalem and Joshua stand before God, no longer accused. So let's look at the prophecy. First of all, I found this in this statement here, okay? Because I think it's very important to keep our focus on how God has always planned to take away your sin, to delete your guilt. Uh, when you look at this, notice, first of all, the reference to the high priest, the high priest here is Joshua. As we said before, he's the mediator between God and man. He has the name Yeshua. Did you know in Hebrew, the name of Jesus is Yeshua? And you have Joshua, who's the great high priest, who's the mediator, who wears these filthy clothes, who gets the clothes of righteousness. And we're told throughout Scripture that Jesus Christ is our eternal great Yeshua, the eternal priesthood of God. He is our eternal one who is clothed in righteousness. He took on all of our filth of sin upon him. Remember on the cross? Are you with me? And then he receives the clothes of righteousness, and he in turn will clothe us in righteousness. Now, Lynn read from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, a moment ago in our call to worship. Here's what this means to us, that we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus is our great high priest. Now look in Zechariah 3, verse 8, that he's the branch. Joshua and his associates are said, look, you are a symbolic of something to come. I'm sending my servant, the branch. The image of the vineyard of God is so beautiful, isn't it? The image of the Messiah being in that vineyard is just so awesome. That's what it's talking about there. The third prophecy in chapter 3, notice in verse 10, in that day, sin is removed. Each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig trees, declares the Lord Almighty. And here Jesus is pictured as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When you have that phrase that's pictured here, his reign will bring peace and safety, healing and fellowship. Isn't it great to know that Jesus is the Messiah? That he's the Lord Jesus Christ? That when we put our faith in him, that he deletes us? of our guilt and our guilt feelings. Now, I love that. No one else can do that except Jesus Christ. I'll tell you something else in this story. No one else can rebuke the accuser other than the Lord. In this story, notice in verse 2, the Lord is the one who rebukes, verse 2, Satan. Not the angel of the Lord, not Joshua. The one who rebukes Satan is the Lord himself. Satan is our adversary looking to destroy us. He wants to entice, reward, accuse, 
and destroy you by guilt, by accusation after accusation. He's the adversary. And so he does that. He wants to lead us to a point that drives us away from God and makes us think that we could never, ever be guilt-free again. He's a powerful adversary. Listen, you can resist the devil by God. You can pray to God to lead you out of temptation, but you cannot rebuke the devil. You do not have that power. Only the Lord has the power to rebuke the devil. Only you can call upon the Lord to rebuke him. In Zechariah 3 verse 2, this is so important for us to know that the angels cannot rebuke the devil, rather. And Satan is standing at the right side of the angel of the Lord, and he's accusing the people of sin. And what you find is the angel of the Lord cannot even rebuke the devil for that. In Jude verse 9, when the death of Moses occurs, it says the archangel Michael and the devil are contending over the body of Moses, and the archangel Michael will not even condemn the devil, nor will he rebuke him. He says, the Lord rebuke you. See, that's the reason why guilt is so powerful. That's the reason it will haunt you unless you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have absolutely no power to resist and no power to come against the devil who is absolutely wiping out your mind through guilt. You have no way except through God. You cannot stand up to him. You can only resist him and only be led out of temptation by the Lord God who's the one that can rebuke. Remember, Satan accuses you to do what? To keep you in guilt. The Holy Spirit convicts you to free you from that guilt. Now, let's look back in Zechariah again. Not only does the Lord rebuke the accuser, he's the one who delivers us. In verse 2, the Lord tells Satan, is not this a burning stick, this man a burning stick, snatched from the fire? What does God do with our guilt? What happens when he deletes us, that guilt from our life? We are delivered from judgment. Amen? We're delivered from that judgment. The reason why guilt is so powerful is because it's linked to the fear of being judged. It's a fearful thing, the Bible says, to do what? To fall in the hands of the living God. God, if your sins are not forgiven, it's a fearful thing. So let's talk about God's judgment. The first time God judged the world, how did he do it? What, how did he judge, destroy the world the first time with what? Water. The next time God judges the world and will destroy it, God's judgment will be what? With fire. With fire. Without Christ, we cannot escape the fires of judgment. So what God does, he delivers us. He snatches us out of the fire of judgment. Amen? And Jude says we are so joyful about that. We are so overwhelmed by that that we in turn, we want to rescue others by snatching them from the flames of fire. If I've been delivered from my guilt, I want to share that with others so they can be delivered from that guilt, right? You see, you have the solution to the guilt feelings and the guilt that's in this world. It's God. He deletes our guilt. Now, not only does he free us from accusation of guilt, not only does he deliver us from the judgment of guilt, notice what else? He clothes us in righteousness. Look in verse 3 through 4, all right? So Joshua is standing before God. And he's in those filthy robes of sin. And then we find that he's there before him. There's no alibis. There's no excuses. 
His condition is one of sin. And then by the grace of God, God takes off his old filthy clothes of sin, doesn't he? And what does he put on him instead? The clothes of righteousness, the brand new clothes. Instead of the dirty clothes of sin, he is clothed in righteousness. Now, here's an important point that's made in Scripture. Here it is, okay? You cannot make alibis, excuses, escape any way you want to, or deny your guilt. If you confess it, God will heal you. God will delete the guilt. There is no alibis here, no excuses. Joshua and the people there are in their filthy sins. But God provides them a new life. He provides them a new set of clothes. Guilt deleted and sins forgiven. So if you hear anything today, please, please listen to this. God wants you to be guilt free. That's what he wants. And too many of us are like the parable. The parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 22. And that's the parable where the king throws a wedding banquet for his son who's getting married. He invites all these people to the wedding, remember? And one guy shows up dressed inappropriately. He shows up, doesn't he, inappropriately. He doesn't wear the right clothes. And he just comes the way he wants to come. And what it's like you have been invited to be part of a wedding, and you're going to be one of the groomsmen. They have rented a black tux for you, right? And instead, you show up wearing a green and yellow plaid suit. You know, it's like... You know, it, that, that's embarrassing, that's insulting uh, to the bride and groom. And here's Jesus is trying to make clear to us in this parable. If you think you can go before God in the final days, and you think that you can appear before him in your own righteousness, wearing your own righteousness, and, you, and you're going to tell God you've been handling your guilt your own way, you, you are going to fail miserably. You are not going to be delivered. It's insulting to God. Now look at these three verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Philippians 3, 9. Paul says he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. And the third one, Galatians 3, 26 through 27. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with what? Christ. That's what God does for us. God deletes our guilt. And when he does that, we're free from accusation. We're delivered from the judgment. We are clothed in righteousness. And then he makes us holy. He makes us holy. Look in Zechariah 3, 5. They put a clean turban on the head of Joshua. So look at the picture of the garments of the great high priest. And every piece of the clothes that the high priest wore had meaning and significance. And one of that particularly was the head, the, the turban that they wore on their head. And the whole point of the garments, the clothes that they wore, and you read in Exodus 20, uh, 6, 28 about all what each part means. It was to remind the priest of Aaron that you represent the people, that you're to live holy before them, and that you're to make all the decisions in regard to what God wants you to do and not what the people want you to do. You're to be holy. And so if you notice the headband, there is a headband around the turban. See the gold one there? It's, it's a phrase written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew and that says, holiness to the Lord. Holiness to the Lord. So here he was in his guilt that needed to be deleted. He deletes it, frees him from accusation, free from guilt, delivers him from the fire. 
gives him clothes of righteousness, and then on his head he says, I'm making you holy. Holiness to the Lord. It's a call to holiness, to live before the Lord with holiness. Holiness is what drives us closer to God, isn't it? He tells us, tells us to pursue peace and holiness in order to see the Lord. Look in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Here's what we are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, that's what God does for us. We're part of that royal priesthood that he's made us. It's so beautiful. So what does it mean to have that? So see it? Beautiful, isn't it? Free from accusation, delivered from judgment, clothed in righteousness, made holy. Now look at the next one here, okay? Look at the next one. Uh, we saw the next slide, if you will. Uh, we're made fruitful, okay? We're made fruitful. In Zechariah 3, verse 8, God tells Zechariah and his associates, notice what he says in Zechariah 3, verse 8, he says, I'm going to send my branch. It's the vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord. The beautiful picture of what it means to be in God, that beautiful vineyard of God's people. In John 15, Jesus points to the fact that he is that branch, that vineyard, and he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Bear much. You'll be fruitful. And not only will you be fruitful in verse 9, you'll be justified. You'll be acquitted. I've set a stone in front of Joshua. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of the land. You're acquitted. You're justified. I love the word justified. Just as what? Just as if I never sin. Justified. Acquitted. Guilt removed. No condemnation. Deleted. Acquitted and free. Let's look at that of the garment of the priesthood again, about those stones, all right? On the chest of the priest were the 12 stones. And the 12 stones, each one had a name of a tribe engraved upon it. So the priest was always reminded that he is representing the people before God, but the people of God are always on his heart and always before him and in his mind because he represents them with their name written on his chest. The salvation of the 12 tribes was a reminder when they saw that was only made possible by God. Their sin was deleted and removed only because of what God did for them. It was written on the stones over the heart of the prophet. And most certainly, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, your name's written where? In the book of life, in the book of life before God. Now, stones were used in other ways. Did you know that they used stones in terms of a courtroom? If you received the black stone, it was for you were guilty. If you received the white stone, you were acquitted. It was also used in athletic events sometimes. When the athlete would win the race, they would be given the stone with their name engraved upon it, which they in turn could show at the end of the races to enter the banquet to be part of the winner's feast. It was given to soldiers at times, the white stone. After a great victory, they would engrave the soldier's name in the white stone so that it would give him certain privileges that he would not have if he just showed the white stone engraved in there. It was used by certain cities to show citizenship. You're a citizen of that city, they would write your name on the stone and it proved that you're a citizen of that kingdom. Do you just see all the references there? Acquitted, free, all the things that take place there. You are, you're a winner, you have victory. You're no longer accused. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We can relate to all that. And that's why Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 17, to the people who are suffering in Smyrna over persecution, he says, if you'll remain faithful, I'm going to give you a white stone with this name written on it. 
It's a stone of faithfulness. It's a stone of triumph. I believe it's the name of Jesus Christ that's written on that. Guilt defeated. Sin removed. Satan rebuked. We have deliverance from the fire. Filthy clothes of sin removed. Made holy. Fruitful once again. Acquitted and justified. Winners and victors. And citizens of the kingdom of God. That puts us in fellowship. This is the final verse. We'll close here. In fellowship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what this means. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Now that's an expression that you find several times in the Old Testament. And it's always in reference to peace and safety and healing of the land. And it occurs when a king has come that is strong enough to bring peace and safety and healing to the land. And because they have the peace and safety and healing, the neighbors are now allowed to gather under the shades of their trees and enjoy life together because of their great king. Our country needs healing. Our people need a healing. Our world needs a healing. And I'm not talking about the COVID. I'm talking about the things that create guilt and struggle and sin in our life. And people are so desperately are trying so many different things to try to make it work. And it's not working. And it's not going to work unless it's God. But when you put Jesus Christ as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings into your life, he brings safety and security and peace and healing to the land and healing to our nation. Where do we turn to in this time of crisis? The only place you can ever turn. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when you turn to him, you find that he is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 John 1, 3 through 4, it declares, Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Joy, fellowship, being neighbors, sitting together once again under the trees in peace and safety. Come when we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come when we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to delete our sin. And to lead our guilt and to make us whole and to heal our land. Jesus said in John 14, 27, I'm going to leave you this gift. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is the gift the world cannot give. See it? Do you believe that? He deletes your guilt. He heals our land. He gives a peace that passes all understanding. He secures us forever, delivers us. So don't be troubled or afraid. So let me ask you this morning, why are you still trying to manage your guilt when you can give it to God who will delete it completely? Why are you doing that? You can't escape from it. You can't deny it. You cannot, in any hope, feel that time's going to heal this. Your God, through Jesus Christ, will free you from accusation. He will deliver you from judgment. He will clothe you in righteousness. He will make you holy. He will make you fruitful. He will acquit you, give you victory, make you a citizen with the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and he will heal your life and delete your guilt. Will you turn to him? Will you give your life to him? Don't spend another second allowing the Satan to continue to accuse you and keep you in your guilt. The guilt that's there, let the Spirit convict you and free you from that. 
through Jesus Christ. Well, I hope this lesson has been an encouragement to you and strengthen your faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are watching online, there's a screenshot here of our four groups and the leaders of our shepherd groups. And if you have a spiritual need, if you're a member of this congregation, would you please get hold of your shepherd in that group? And they would love to assist you in that spiritual need any way that they can. If you're not a member of this congregation, you're watching online, first of all, thanks for being with us today. Glad you're part of this service. Please come back. And when you get an opportunity, please come worship with us live as well. We'd love to have you here. But if you have a spiritual need, we'd like to help you as well. Please write to the email address on the screen, and we'll get back with you as soon as possible. If you're here this morning and you have a spiritual need, please get with one of our elders that is here this morning after the services, and they'll meet with you and pray with you as well. Let's continue in our worship through singing and in prayer.